0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: Welcome, 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 welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi,
2: everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. John Zogby of Zogby International and the Zogby poll on the United States and what's going on in that country. David Milgaard spent 23 years in prison for a murder he did not commit. David's going to talk about how the justice system has to change. Jerry Butts returning to Team Trudeau. Lisa Rait, deputy leader of the Conservative Party of Canada, had opinions on that. And a young astronaut, a young Canadian astronaut, Dr. Jenny Seide Gibbons, joined us on the 50th anniversary of Armstrong and Aldrin walking on the moon. The federal government reached a $900 million settlement with members of the Canadian Armed Forces, women members who allege sexual harassment and abuse. I spoke with Janet Merlo, a former RCMP officer who was the lead in the class action lawsuit for the same reason against the Mounties. And Justin Trudeau talking about a refinery, an oil refinery in British Columbia being a possibility. Mike Smith of the Vancouver province shared his thoughts. So, in the United States this week,
0: a great deal of activity on the political front with Donald Trump and his rally and uh, what he said about the so-called squad within the Democratic Party, the uh, four fresh-person Congresswomen, um, the new Congress members. And uh, it's just indicative, I think, of the discord and the disconnect that's happening in America. I don't quite know how to how to um, how to interpret what's going on and I don't want to jump to um, Unnecessary Not even conclusions, but speculation but I was alive when in 1968 the Detroit riots and other race riots took place in the U.S. I was um, just barely out of my teens then but I remember very clearly seeing the images on the television screen and it was deeply, deeply disturbing. I don't know where the United States stands now. I don't know where the people in the U.S. are headed. I don't know if this is just a political battle. I don't know if it includes people uh, right across the societal spectrum. I just don't know. But I am very curious, as are many of us. We have our own issues in this country. We have an election coming up on the 21st of October, and there is a lot of tugging and pulling and pushing going on, and it's going to turn into a nasty election campaign. It'll involve all of us before the 21st of October. But let's look at the United States and back with us on the show, and I always appreciate the opportunity to speak with him, is John Zogby, Zogby Analytics, the world-famous Zogby Poll. John uh, writes op-eds for some of the most prestigious newspapers and media organizations in the United States, like the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and so on, and he's the author of We Are Many we are one uh, gosh john don't know where to start um w- without the fact checking about what mm-hmm. trump actually said and what the squad have said and how the democrats and republicans are squaring off how do you describe for canadians what's going on in the united states right now and let me just add this when you and i talked last weekend i just heard such a sense of frustration in your voice so what's going on
3: what's going on is um a a cyclical occurrence of of nativism and racism it's something that uh, is, is recurring in american history generally you know it's been associated with hard economic times and then uh public turns to resentment um uh, this time, they're different twist uh, because, you know, we're in a relatively peaceful time, relatively prosperous time. But we're also in a revolutionary time. Uh, everybody, the, uh, Canada, the w- emerging countries, the world over, wh- whoever it is, um, uh, everything is falling apart. Uh, technology is driving change so quickly, and essentially, what we have are movements all over the United States. Donald Trump represents uh, all over the world. Donald Trump represents ours—a uh, backlash against this change. Uh, people who sense that they're losing, from uh, people who sense that um, too much is going on too fast. You know, in addition to technological change and losing the prospect of losing many jobs. Uh, There's immigration, there are refugees, uh, there are people of color, mainly, who who are coming in. I mean, so that's the broad stroke. The second piece of what's going on is that uh, Donald Trump, the showman, has been able to take advantage of this resentment and ride it to victory. And frankly, there's no sense even parsing his words or looking at... Uh, the, the videos or or uh, replaying it at all more importantly than what he said and what he said was repugnant you know, be, essentially they should go home they should get out of here uh, is that he unleashed something and probably has now unleashed something that he can't control you know, when, when people start chanting um, send her home, send her home that's that nativism and that's uh, the the worst uh, part of of the United States unfortunately.
0: Is this a creation of Donald Trump's time in office and I know you've just said it's a global phenomenon and I fully agree with you uh, but is it a creation of Donald Trump's time in office for the United States because when we talked last weekend you didn't spare the criticism for Obama and Clinton either.
3: No, this is a pull and a tug, uh, basically. On, uh, on, on one end, you, you know, as my old Jesuit uh, theology professor taught me, God writes straight with crooked lines. Uh, you know, we, we are he- heading towards a world that's getting better. We, we are less uh, racist. Uh, we are more diverse. Um, uh, w- Progress. We're moving forward. By the same token, there are forces that are resistant to that, many you know for understandable reasons. But uh, with with Obama, the situation was he put together a coalition of of younger people, of of non whites of uh, young women in particular of a burgeoning what Richard Florida calls creative class and put that together into uh, the coalition of 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 the 21st century um and this essentially is a, you know in the french revolutionary terms the thermidor kind of like the cooling off the backlash the s- stepping back and it didn't help things that um that the Democrats in 2016 nominated a hopelessly flawed um, uh, candidate in in Hillary Clinton, and that allowed Donald Trump to win. It seems like almost anybody else would have defeated him.
0: Let me ask you about the fault lines in American society. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are they deeper, becoming deeper? Are they... um, Sufficiently so that you worry because you remember 1968 as well, and the and the and the and the race riots that took place in the United States. Do you concern yourself at all that fault lines, societal fault lines in the United States, could be so uh, getting sufficiently deep that not necessarily the same scenario is revisited, but something similar, something just as 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 ominous.
3: Roy, I'm a believer, and and empirically uh an observer and believer of progress of things getting better but the fault line is uh is there it's getting deeper uh we can be in for a longer ugly period than i had previously thought <sighs>
2: Here's an email that, or not an email, but a tweet, John, that I received uh, on my Twitter account at the Roy Green Show. I'll tell you
0: what's going on in the United States. It's a fight for freedom and democracy, and Donald Trump is heading the fight. The left has lost the thread. The left is the party of fascism and racism. So many people, uh, maybe most people, if you cut right down to where, how they how they feel, at least what I'm hearing is it's right versus left right versus left right versus left is 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 that how you see it or or, or not
3: no it's deeper than that however the the right and left have become more po- polarized and hardened in their positions so that tweet you just read actually if you had just changed the word from Donald Trump to uh, the democrats it would have been the same sentiment you know it's common for both sides to call each other uh, fascist
2: is that how you win now i mean is this how you win in elections well it's
3: very cynical Yeah, if if, if only you what you try to do basically is get only 50 people to show up and make sure you get your 26 out to vote that's awfully cynical but yeah you know i i i see the um, you know, the, the young consultants learning how to operate like that with, with no subtlety whatsoever. And now, of course, here in the U.S., since the um, Supreme Court decision uh, earlier in this decade, there's uh, way too much money that's, that's available and being spent to just poison people.
0: Uh, we we call people uh, who run political parties here in Canada who have a lot of influence and little experience. We call them the uh, euphemistically the boys in short pants. And it's not <laughs> you know, it's not just it's not a gender thing, but it's it's just a phrase. No, no, but but let me let me true. ask you this:
4: if, There's
0: a lack of maturity. Yeah, well, there, definitely. That's how they're trained. And you know, a lack of experience. What yeah. what is what's the what's the reaction of the average American, if there is an average American? But what is the average, for my purposes, my question, what's the reaction of the average American to the squad? Uh, they're having uh, Ilhan Omar and her mm-hmm. fellow uh, new new members of Congress. They're having trouble with their own Democratic Party and House Leader yeah. Pelosi particularly. What's the average American thinking saying about, about them?
3: Well, Roy, you suggested this in your question, which is that is very hard to answer because, um, well, let's define the average American in the middle. The right. average American in the middle is barely paying any attention. Whatsoever because, Isn't that interesting? Uh, yeah, and, and, and frankly, it doesn't have anything to do with them. You know, they wake up in the morning and go to work anyway, and um, if somebody beats someone else to a pulp, they still have to wake up in the morning and go to work the next day. Um, and don't take hard positions, just want, you know, solutions. But with that said, if I look at the polls, President Trump's numbers are actually going up. Not much. But, you know, from 42 to 46 percent, when he gets into 46 percent approval rating, remember, he was able to win uh, the national election with 46 percent of the vote. That's why you can't count him out. So he's to to get directly to your question, he's scoring points with voters who are older, especially over 65, those who um, grew up with the specter of communism those for whom the term socialism was interchangeable not with Willy Brandt you know or democratic socialists but uh,
0: but but John you know, I'm sorry to interrupt. interrupt John sorry to interrupt but if the older voter has that experience and we're just talking about the boys in short pants lack of maturity lack of experience doesn't the older voter have a have a point when the older voter says hold on i understand what and I'm not endorsing anything I've already said. But does the older voter have a point when, when, when the older voter says, I, I get it. I understand what, what, what freedom is. I understand what democracy mm-hmm. is. I understand what communism is. I, I saw what socialism has done. I saw the tanks in Hungary and in Czechoslovakia. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, right? So, this is the... Yeah. this this Now, what is older? Is You said over 65. I'm thinking it had to be more than people over 65 that voted for trump you got more than 60 million votes
3: well there are hard rock conservatives as well there are rural voters there are um uh traditional working people um who vote with their values and are afraid of big government and socialism their terminology um uh because they have to pay for it uh they're not beneficiaries there's more resentment um, we call it the white working class I hate the term uh, but more resentment among uh, uh, um, working people who work in the private sector against their their counterparts who work in the public sector because hey I got to pay for you and look at what you get and look at what I'm losing
0: okay John um, I have about I have about 45 seconds I'm sorry this time' yeah. about go so fast uh, can you just summarize for us in that time Again, my, my question, what's happening in the U.S.?
3: What's happening is we're uh, being pulled apart at the seams. A lot of it is manipulation, but it's um, uh, for the next election, but manipulation that um, is inevitable.
2: I always appreciate
0: talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Roy. Good to talk to Take you. Take care. John Zogby. The innocent in this country have too often found themselves convicted of serious crime, innocent of serious crime, murder, and they go to prison for long periods of time for a crime they did not commit. Last week it was Glenn Assoon. This week it is uh, Dennis Oland. And um, I'm joined now by David Milgard. Mr. Milgaard was the the subject of headlines across this country for years, as we became aware after his mom, Joyce, who I spent a lot of time on the air with over the years, uh, approached Brian Mulroney uh, in public and spoke about her son and his unfair, his illegal incarceration for murder. He did not commit the murder of which he was convicted, did 23 years in prison. David Milgard joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. David, every time I think of that, it makes me shudder. It's awful. I can't imagine what it was like for you. I cannot begin to imagine it.
4: Now, it's Dennis Oland,
0: and last week it was Glenn Assoon.
4: I'm glad that I have a chance to talk to you. Yeah, Glenn's situation, you know, a lot of ways are parallels between his situation and mine. In my situation, uh, there was a serial rapist that was responsible for the crime. And that information was available for people to see and should have been disclosed by the prosecution and had it been even disclosed uh, prior to my appeals in the Saskatchewan Appeal Court, I would have been released. In uh, the situation with Glenn, you know, this information was deleted. Uh, the federal documents that show the RCMP deleted the evidence of other suspects, not just the, uh, I guess it would be a serial murder, that had killed uh, six, I believe six or maybe possibly seven people uh, identified as one of the possible suspects. Uh, thank goodness uh, he's he's now in custody. Uh, my my biggest concern here for, for the people that are listening to this show is to kind of think in the broad picture of all the different times there have been people wrongfully convicted, you know, and all the times that they spend inside Uh, prison, waiting to get out, uh, working through a system that fails them miserably, the Ministerial Review Board doesn't work, doesn't help them, you know. What is really taking place? Well, the one thing that's taking place its the biggest concern of all is the fact that the people that are responsible for committing these crimes are out there committing crimes. And I think that has to be the the biggest concern that we we realize is something that, you know, we have to try to do something about.
0: You were 16 years of age and in Saskatchewan, traveling through Western Canada when the nurse's assistant was murdered. And uh, and Larry Fisher, the serial rapist, was, was there for the taking. The police could and should have found that he's the one who committed the crime. But you were easy.
4: Yeah, he was he was working in that area, for, you know, at the time of the of the murder of, of gail miller and you know he uh, continued to be a, a person that uh, did terrible things to uh, to women and uh, you know eventually you know uh, when the dna identified me as the person that could not be responsible for the crime the really good thing about it is that it identified larry fisher as the person that was responsible i don't know many cases of dna uh, uh, where people are being proven that they're factually innocent like that and I don't like that term that's not a good term I mean uh, it'll be used in a, in a bad way to there are a lot of people that are wrongfully convicted that you know it's it's procedural it's different things that you know make their conviction you know null and void this this idea that a person has to be factually innocent to be having his situation corrected isn't appropriate either, but yeah, he uh, he was identified as the person responsible. You know, David, as
0: well, when, when when an innocent person is wrongfully convicted and sent to prison, as you were, as uh, as Assoon was, it is disrespectful to the victim as well to the memory of the victim but i want to I want to ask you this, the appeals process itself, you and I talked about this a little bit on the phone yesterday. What has to change about the appeals process? You spent twenty three years behind bars waiting to be released for a crime you didn't commit. Glenn is soon, uh, seventeen years. We also have uh, have Mr. Oland. What has to change about the appeals process?
4: Well, the the important thing is to realize that any person that has been uh, the best way to say it is, uh, Unlucky. That's not the right way. Any person that has had to live through the horrendous uh, living of of being inside prison where it's horrible for a crime that they have not committed, you know, it's it's caught up in a system that is uh, not available to assist them to get out of that situation effectively. Uh, One of the reasons is that the criteria that any person wanting to have their case reviewed by the ministerial review board that's presently, available is they must exhaust all their appeal processes including the supreme court of canada this is dysfunctional it does not work if you have information proving your wrongful conviction why take years and years to exhaust all the appeal processes it is ridiculous if you think about it it is not justice it is just wrong an independent border review can review immediately and effectively administrate justice when i say an independent border review this is a board of people that are, are not in any way involved with the justice system. That's people like you and me, where we you know where people have people come forward when they have information and evidence suggesting that they're not guilty, and it's reviewed. And uh, you know they can do something about it. You know to take this step even one further. You know, and it's very important to realize this. I was talking to um, a former minister of justice. Uh, Erwin Kotler, uh, he was the justice critic and a member of parliament for for Quebec for a while after he got out of being a minister of justice. He told me, he said, David, you know, I I was minister of justice and I found out the information, uh, the insect evidence in relation to Stephen Truscott that showed me that the man was not guilty. And, you know, I felt so terrible because I had no power, no way I could just say, that's it. I know the truth. You can go home. So, you know, not only does a person have to go through years and years of appeals, but once even they've established that that person is not guilty, they cannot do anything about it but send it back again to the province, to the courts, or to the Supreme Court of Canada and expect them to take more and more years uh, to, to get them uh, finally released from prison. This process must end now. Canadians cannot allow this to continue. We must do what needs to be done or continue on in shame doing what is wrong. That's the that's truth.
2: And understanding
0: the terrifying reality that it could be anybody next.
4: Yeah, that's the truth. You know, that's one of the things I say when I'm talking. I, I do a fair amount of talking uh, universities and other different uh, functions and stuff. And I uh, often stop and I just say, you know, I want you to think about what it would feel like to be like me, 16 years old, and to be caught up, uh, you know, wrongfully convicted uh, for a murder you had nothing to do with. Just think about it. I would stop in my talk. Then I'd say, it's about time for me to wake you all up. (laughs) This could happen to you, or I hate to say it, your children. And until we do do something about uh, some of the different reasons why wrongful convictions take place and more importantly i have a system that's available there to get them out as quickly and efficiently as possible you know we are stuck with the situation that we have at present
0: david thank you so much for the time
4: oh i appreciate it i just felt the need to say something and i said i would do this and i'm glad that i've had a chance to do so
0: well i'm thank glad you to- very
4: much for your care and concern for the people that are locked up that have done nothing wrong and need to get out of our prisons.
0: Thank you, David, for what you're doing. It's really, really significantly important because, again, it protects society, and the justice system has to be just, and (laughs) we have the evidence that it isn't.
4: That's the truth. Thank
0: thank you, David. All the best to you.
4: You're welcome. Bye-bye.
0: David Milgard. 23 years in prison. For a crime he didn't commit, and what is really remarkable about Mr. Milgard, among, among every, he's so eloquent, and he makes his case so extremely strongly, is after fifteen years in prison, justice officials said to him, "If you will admit guilt, we'll parole you," and he said no. He wouldn't do it. He didn't commit the crime, and he wasn't going to plead guilty to it, so he spent another eight years, an additional eight years in prison, 23 years. Now, in most lifetimes, that's more than a quarter of your life. I have some more questions, by the way, for Ronald Dalton, who has uh, spent almost nine years in prison for convicted of murdering his wife. He was innocent. He joined us last weekend. He's the co-president of Innocence Canada. They do such tremendous work to assist those who are wrongfully convicted. And I have a few more questions from Mr. Dalton about this issue. He'll join us tomorrow. Before we talk to Ms. Raitt, here's a little bit about of, of an exchange between Lisa Raitt and Jerry Butts during the Justice Committee hearings over LAVSCAM.
5: It would seem that you determined that there was a problem. Prime Minister determined there yeah. was a problem. You communicated with PMO that there was a solution that was needed. But you tell us today that you weren't looking for a solution or an action. <clears throat> you just wanted her to take another opinion. So who is right? Jody or you?
3: Uh, I am not here to uh, call anybody names Ms. Raitt. Um, but I I really don't think I would have used that word. Okay. I really don't. I can't be 100% certain. And if there were any problem that I felt needed to be solved, it was to make sure that all due consideration was given into both options. That's all. And is- and, and if, if I can add, and I, I think this is an important point, because, you know, people have made a lot of insinuations. And I think they've been based on speculation. Um, I don't have a strong opinion. I, I mean, honestly, I I don't envy either the former or the current attorney general on this call. I really don't. I don't have a strong view either way.
0: Gerald Butts, Lisa Raitt, during the Justice Committee hearings on LAVSCAN. Lisa Raitt joins us, the deputy leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Ms. Raitt, thank you very much for the time. Remember that exchange?
5: I do, vividly. I, I actually have a good memory. <laughs>
0: So talk to us about what your sense is and what your memory tells you about what Mr. Butts announced about leaving the, uh, the inner sanctum, as it were, and then today the story that he may very well be back.
5: I don't think anybody is surprised that he's back advising. If you take a look at two of the other main um, protagonists in this story, Ben Chen and Matthew um, I can't remember his last name, but he, uh, both of them certainly have high positions within the campaign, uh, and Ben Chin is on the road with the prime minister. So it makes sense that Mr. Butts is back. What, what my issue this morning was the attempt by the CBC to normalize it as just a shrug that, oh... This will go away, and I guess it's all over and and time has gone by, and um, I'm here to say absolutely not. We didn't go through what we went through in the spring, uncovering what is an atrocious abuse of of political power to try to interfere in a prosecution. We're not going to forget about that, and it's not going to go away. So sure, Mr. Butts wants to come in and advise his, um, his leader on how to proceed. That's great, but his leader is going to carry with him every single day everything that they did with respect to Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane
0: Philpott. Uh, I'm looking through your tweets this morning. I'm trying to find the word, and I, I think you used the word disgraceful, and you were called out on that, weren't you?
5: I was, yeah. I used the term disgraceful in two ways. I I postulated what um, a different person would have written as a headline as opposed to the, the coy, they're putting the band back together. I mean, the reality is, is he resigned in disgrace. I'm not the only one that has said that. Somebody else said it at the time. I think it was Charlie Angus. And it is the truth. He resigned in disgrace. And he said he had to defend himself from the outside. Um, Jody wilson Rabel and did Philpott didn't, weren't afforded that luxury of being able to defend themselves because they were bound up by the Prime Minister's shackle saying that they had to abide by cabinet confidentiality. Jerry did not. He got to talk about everything he wanted to, and was given access to emails even before Mark Norman was given access to emails. Just to show you the the amount of uh, uh, you know discretion was given to the defense of Mr. Butts as opposed to other people. Um, but the the reality is is that somebody quibbled with me about whether or not this was disgraceful, and I went back, looked at my tweets, and I came back and I said, yeah, I think that's the appropriate word, disgrace.
0: Would you remind us, please, what it is that Jody Wilson-Raybould wanted to share with Canadians? I mean, I'm sure you have a sense of what what she wanted to say, which caused the uh, PMO to panic in that series of five to four votes to shut her down.
5: Yeah, it's everything that happened after she resigned as the, the Minister of Justice and was still the Minister of Veterans Affairs. And the same thing for Jane Philpott. It's everything that happened um, while she was the president of the Treasury Board and Cabinet that caused her to resign so we have no idea what it was that the prime minister did, what his team did, that caused both of those women to take the principled stance of resigning from their cabinet positions. We still don't know why. We, and, and in fact, you know, Dr. Philpott said in a in a widely publicized interview that people need to know the truth. And the funny part is, Roy, the same words pretty much came out of the mouth of Vice Admiral Mark Norman, that Canadians deserve to know the truth. and. And yet, in another case, uh, it seems to be confidentiality in wrapping the settlement that he received.
0: Do you expect Jody Wilson-Raybould to say more during the campaign? Can she?
5: I don't. I don't think she can. I mean, I believe that she has been very clear. As has Jane Philpott, been very clear that they strongly take seriously the. Uh, the the swearing of the oaths that they did in terms of cabinet confidentiality and members of the Privy Council and that they're not going to disclose without given permission by the Prime Minister, they're not going to disclose any confidentiality material that they were that they were privy to or even what happened or what was said. So, you know, no, I don't think so. I think they're going to stand by their word, and that's exactly what the Liberals are hoping for, that they have, by the series of 5-4 votes shutting down every query that we put up at Justice Committee or at Ethics Committee, um, that they are just hoping that they smother this and cover it up and everything goes away. And they're so cocky about it that they bring Jerry Butts back, CBC writes an article, no big deal, everybody move on. And I'm not going to accept that, and the Conservative Party of Canada will not accept that. What they did was grossly over the line in terms of trying to interfere in a fraud and corruption case. And in the the wake of it all, two cabinet ministers feel the need to resign, as well as the clerk of the Privy Council. So clearly, this is more than just a, oh, that's what happened in the spring, let's all forget about it and move forward.
0: Ms. Ray, thank you for the time. And let's not forget the OECD is continuing its investigation under its anti-bribery convention of the Trudeau government. So. Sure,
5: they are. I mean, and at what point, Roy, do you just say, This is enough? I've had it. Yeah. This is enough.
0: Thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you again. Thanks very much, Roy. Bye bye. Lisa Ray, Deputy Leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. I saw the whole thing from a friend's cottage north of Montreal, and uh, we were there in the late teens, early 20s, and everybody was cheering. Everybody was cheering. Hundreds of millions watched globally as Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin stepped on the moon. And I kept, you know, the the thing I kept thinking was, how are they going to feel when they're back on the limb and they have to push that button to get the thing to go back up to the, uh, to the Apollo spacecraft? That has to be one. You know the system's going to work. You, you have confidence in it. But it has to be an unnerving moment, I would think. I would think. Joining us on the program is Dr. Jenny Seide Gibbons, one of Canada's confirmed astronauts, Canadian Space Agency 2017. She was added to the astronaut roster. Dr. Seide Gibbons, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations.
6: Thank you, and thank you for having me on the show. I'm pretty happy to speak with you.
0: Well, it's great to speak with you, and it's an exciting day. How, how How are you feeling about this 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moonwalk?
6: I mean, I'm feeling, I'm feeling fantastic. I'm, I'm actually here in Vancouver, um, and I got to really share um, some nice moments of reflection with some people here talking about the moon landing and what it still means, what it meant back then and what it still means to people now, um, so I'm very happy to celebrate that achievement with everyone.
0: You know, uh, you're a professional world-class engineer. And I'd like you to explain for us, please, because we've been using the phrase that what powered the uh, Apollo 11 technologically, you know, the the, the computer abilities that it had, was so marginally, uh, it was almost nil compared to even the old flip phones that we had. It was an incredible human achievement. But how would you describe what the men and the women of NASA accomplished leading to this day 50 years ago?
6: Well, I like to speak about it um, in just terms of ex- exactly that. What a monumentous achievement it was! Like, we can talk about what Apollo did for, like, let's say, technological development and miniaturization. I mean, we have more power, like you said, in our phones than they did on the um, in the Apollo mission. Now, but um, the reason why we even have those phones is because of Apollo. I mean, the miniaturization of of chips is all windfall from the Apollo era. So really, when I want people to think about the achievement and what we did, I tell them that we built this rocket, and I know people know this, but the, this rocket the size of a skyscraper, and we put it together with the precision of people's, people's watch, their wristwatch, we accelerated it to the speed of a bullet, and we sent it a quarter of a million miles away. I mean, we did that again and again, and then we brought people back. So, really, what Apollo did, be, besides this enormous, enormous technological achievement, is I think it really changed what we thought we could do. It changed what we thought was possible.
0: Perhaps the greatest human achievement of all.
6: I think so. I mean, when you speak to people who, who um, lived through, to, like, to see the moon landing, like you were just speaking about your experience, but you talk to so many people who they'll remember political events or um, maybe elections, maybe even wars but they always will mention the moon landing. It's just such a fundamental achievement, and it's really a testament to to human exploration.
0: What attracted you to the idea of being an astronaut?
6: Well, when I was um, really young, I just wanted to discover new things. I mean, I really liked science, and I really liked learning. Uh, I spent a lot of time in science centers when I was growing up. Um, And when, I mean, this is probably... I was probably too too young to realize the significance of this, but Roberta Bondar, Canada's first female astronaut, flew on the, the space shuttle. And I didn't really understand the impact of that, but my mom really emphasized it and made sure that I knew what was happening. And uh, we talked about it. I mean, I had a scrapbook of news clippings from her mission from all the way back then. I must have been three or four years old. And so... Um, there were a couple of those big influences that got me interested in space, but really what drove me was that that uh, the scientific exploration. I wanted to learn. You
0: know, the, tra- the training, the training that you undergo must be uh, just absolutely intense, with no mar- maybe no margin for error. What's the most memorable training that you've experienced? What stands out?
4: Gosh, we,
6: we've done so much in the past two years. I've been in the basic training since the, the selection two years ago. Um, it is certainly a lot to learn and it's very fast paced. Things that stick out to me would be the first. I mean, the first time that I, I went supersonic in a jet never done anything like that before and and the the idea of training in that fast paced environment with real consequences, that that really hit home for me. So that was one moment. Another one was the first time that I was in the space suit. So we do spacewalk training in a giant pool down in Houston called the Neutral Buoyancy Lab. And the first time that I was in a space suit in that pool and we were practicing how to do maintenance on the outside of the International Space Station. That was another moment where I really had some reflection and thought, wow, this is... Pretty cool
0: stuff. This is real, huh? Yeah. <laughs> this is real. Yeah. Well, talk to us about Canada's participation in the uh, in the in the in the international space program. Now, this this country has been very active, uh, and we were just talking with Mike Armstrong from Global News. Uh, Seven o'clock this evening. There's the uh, uh, a documentary that Global is running, uh, the Moon Landing and the Maple Leaf. Canada's participation in the in the whole space effort. Now, uh, can you speak to us a little bit about that? <laughs>
6: yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I first of all, I love seeing this talked about now, like Canada's role in the Apollo era and following that. Um, I mean, we all know the engineers from the Azro era had to go somewhere and they really went to to the states to work on the Apollo mission. So I'm sure that that will be well covered in the documentary and discussed in depth. but I see, I mean, I see Canadian contributions everywhere when we talk about international partnership. Obviously, Canada's made an enormous impact with really phenomenal and and really cutting-edge world-leading robotics on the International Space Station. And that, I mean, the value of that robotic arm that's on the space station, Canadarm2, it is used so, so much for maintenance and visiting vehicles. I mean... It's just a phenomenal technology. And besides that, when you see someone like like David St. Jacques, one of our colleagues, fly to space. Spend 200 days on the International Space Station, and of course, he just came back under a month ago. Seeing that, you, you're really proud of Canada and the contribution we've made these past 50 years.
0: Well, I want to congratulate you on, on all of your achievements. You've uh, you've you've done so much, accomplished so much in your life. Uh, special honors, uh, uh, instructor at the University of Cambridge, and, and I want to ask you this as well: What What's ahead for you as far as the uh, the the actual? getting out into space is concerned is there a schedule is there an expectation
6: that's a great question it's really hard to say with any certainty what a mission would be or what a schedule would be and that's just the nature of the space business i mean space right now is changing so quickly with Um, Things like the Lunar Gateway on the horizon, um, the moon missions, potentially coming up, moon missions, um, as well as different vehicles to fly on with commercial partners like SpaceX and Boeing. So it's really hard to say with any certainty um, what type of mission I would be in. But I'm just in this role because I want to fly in space, and I want to bring um, my experiences back and share them with Canada. I mean, uh, whatever mission I get assigned to, I'll obviously be thrilled. Um, but we have no idea what that would be yet.
0: Well, I can tell by the sound of your voice you've done lots of interviews. (laughs)
6: <laughs> well, I'm pretty happy to share this. And again, seeing the interest with Apollo is pretty special. I'm really
5: glad that, to see that in Canada.
0: Yeah, I'm very proud of you and, uh, and your accomplishments in science and uh, as being an astronaut uh, as selected by the Canadian Space Agency. And we'll be looking for you um, space-bound in the, in the future. And we'll all feel good because we have a sense we know you a little bit now. Thanks so much for the time today.
6: Uh, thank you for the support and for speaking
0: with me. All right. Take good care. Thank you very much. Bye. Do- Dr. Jenny Seide Gibbons. Somebody sent me an email. said, ask her about UFOs. And we've heard that astronauts on Apollo missions and on the space station have spoken about UFOs somehow being involved and engaged with them. But I I didn't want to do that. just I didn't want to do that. <laughs> Uh, well I did but but I didn't because there are some fascinating stories about astronauts saying that they had encounters with the UFOs and then there's one of the Apollo missions they got in on film and after they returned to Earth the film somehow disappeared and was never seen again so i I don't know and she's just a remarkable, remarkable young woman. She's her accomplishments are, are just so many. Dr. Jennifer Sidie Gibbons from Calgary. And we wish her all the very, very best. Very proud of her. Now the federal government as you know if you've been paying attention to the news all week as we all do the federal government has reached a 900 million dollar settlement over military sexual misconduct the class action suit brought by women in the Canadian armed forces Janet Merlot is a former RCMP officer and lead plaintiff in the class action against the Mounties uh, 100 million dollars was the uh, was the agreement there and Janet's book is no one to tell breaking my silence On life in the RCMP it is an excellent read and uh, it is a disturbing read because it takes you right inside Janet's life how are you my friend
7: I'm doing well thank you
0: good to talk to you again Janet what are your thoughts on the federal government settling the uh, class action with the Canadian Armed Forces women for nine hundred million dollars what are your thoughts on that
7: I'm very happy, very happy to see that they they found their voices collectively like we did and that it was settled successfully in their favor. It's, it's a great thing.
0: Now, I understand that the payouts for women in the Canadian Armed Forces are going to be quite small.
7: They are. I was reading that also, that the pay, the payouts are, are smaller than, than what we received. But it might be that there will be so many come forward that the numbers might far exceed what we had to to pay out. So I, I'm I'm not sure why the why it's lower, but and it's unfortunate that it's lower. It should be the same across the board for sure. Do
0: you remember? Can you share with us how the negotiation, how the how the figure of 100 million dollars was arrived at for your class action?
7: I think at at the time it was. An educated guess based on how many women had come forward at that point, and and the the settlement was to start at 100 million, with the opportunity to go back for more if needed. And they have already done that. So, I I think it was just um, it was just a, a based on previous class actions and and previous settlements that they based it on.
0: Now you and I have spoken uh, about this issue of sexual harassment within the RCMP for years, and I go back to the uh, our conversations that we've had on the air, post the settlement arrived at for the class action, and I remember you saying not long ago. I think it was you who said not long ago. There are still women, and maybe significant numbers of women who have received nothing. Is that is that the case?
7: From what I hear, there there are a lot of women who who in in the in the settlement process, we had to submit a, a claim package and a lot, everybody had to submit a claim package and then you were rated between one and six on a scale and given the, the amount of money according to the number that you you ended up at. And I think a lot of women were disappointed that they, they thought, for example, they might have been a five on the scale and they were assessed at a two. Or they thought they were three, and they were assessed as as one. So I'm hearing a lot of disappointment from women who thought that their cases were far more substantial than what they were they were classed at. So that's a little disheartening, for sure.
0: You know, Janet, applying a numeric scale to someone's abuse experience just has to be uh, it has to be discouraging. And I, I don't think it does much. I can't imagine it does much to encourage women to come forward
7: it it's um it's probably the easiest way to to um dispense the money that they have and yeah i i totally feel for the women who who feel that they were shorted or that they didn't qualify as highly as they had thought they would i i i really don't know how how they did that how someone could adjudicate at a low level if if the women themselves, and, and even lawyers sometimes, you know, thought that there would be a five or a six and, and it came back low. So it's, yeah, it it would certainly discourage some people.
0: Do you think the class action lawsuits actually empower women who find themselves in a situation such as you did and your fellow officers and civilian employees within the RCMP and the Canadian Armed Forces women? Do you think the class action lawsuits and the settlements arrived at actually give women power they should have had all along. Is it is it an empowering experience?
7: It is, and and more to the point that we were validated. That you know the, the courts saw that that what happened to us or what we claim to have happened to us did, and and the validation is far more worth more than any financial settlement. We'll never get back financially what we lost in lost wages and lost money from pensions and things that we would have earned along the way had we had we been able to keep our jobs. But I, I think the validation is the biggest thing.
0: Are you expecting, um, just taking this thought a step further, are you expecting real institutional change to be the result of the class action suits and the judgments brought against the RCMP and against the military?
7: Well, I think two things. I think watching the RCMP women and the now the military women will will encourage women in other organizations and other companies to find their voice and come forward. And we saw that this week in the in a Canadian company who was trying to strike down a, a harassment complaint, and the courts ruled against them, allowing this complaint now to move forward. And that was in the that's in the airline industry, and I. I think it'll also make organizations and companies wake up to the fact that this is now, this ball is now rolling and women are going to find their voices and they're going to unite. So they better clean up their workplaces or they're going to be the next on the list. So you, I, I hope employers and employees all learn something.
0: You had so much to do with the leadership role in getting this done because you stepped up were among the very first of the women in the RCMP, maybe the first, to step up and say, no more, no more. Janet, I uh, I appreciate the time. Thank you very much. Uh, no one to tell breaking my silence on life in the RCMP. Thanks, Janet. Thank you, Roy. Janet Merlot on The Roy Green Show. Now the prime minister saying in British Columbia... That Well, here's the quote. Uh, We're always open to seeing what the private sector proposes, what business cases are out there. We believe in getting things done the right way, and we're going to work with people to find solutions to make sure that people can afford their weekly bills. This has to do with the incredibly expensive gasoline in B.C. and the inquiry, public inquiry that's been called by the premier. And now Trudeau is... um, is musing about that was all about maybe a, a, a private sector oil refinery. My God. Uh, how would anything like that get past the NEB, the National Energy Board, particularly these days? Mike Smith joins me, columnist with the Vancouver Province, CKNW radio host, one of the best in the country. We almost appreciate speaking with Mike. Um, am, I, am I misunderstanding this, Mike? is Is this just pure political ma- manipulation or am I missing a boat?
1: I'm sure glad you saved that tape of Trudeau with the <laughs> phasing out the oil sands. Yeah, That is unforgettable. Um, let's also not forget, Roy, this is the same Justin Trudeau who has killed pipelines. He has toughened environmental restrictions on oil and gas projects. He's imposed a national carbon tax on petroleum products to discourage their use. He has imposed a ban on tankers on the north coast of British Columbia where this new bc oil refinery would presumably be located so when i hear trudeau say that he's open to a new bc oil refinery i think there's let's say some reasonable doubt about whether he's serious or genuine like come on he's not exactly a champion of this uh, sector but this is the silly season i mean there's an election in october he wants to be all things to all voters and this is the time of year when politicians will pretty much say anything to get elected so there's certainly a lot of caveats here but like you said let's take a precise look at the quote we're always open to seeing what the private sector proposes what business cases are out there Unquote. so he's talking about an oil refinery here in bc so we can take him at face value there he's open to it but of course saying you're open to something doesn't mean you would approve it or support it
2: this will be the same guy who accused small business people of being in 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 business simply
0: to to, to evade taxes
1: yeah i mean he said a few things over over the years that I, i'm sure that he he regrets but you know, on the surface, when you take this at face value. If he says that he's open to an oil refinery in B.C., well, I guess that's, that is good news, I guess, to an extent for a guy like David Black, okay? So he is a B.C.-based newspaper tycoon, and this is the guy who for many years has been pushing the idea of a large oil refinery on the north coast of B.C. near Kitimat, and it's called Kitimat Clean. And he says it would be the cleanest oil refinery in the world it would be huge, $22 billion, it would process 400,000 barrels of Alberta bitumen per day, that would be the largest refinery in Canada, it would rank up there among the biggest in the world, and it would refine uh, fuels, so gasoline, diesel, kerosene, uh, largely for the export market. And, you know, there's some, there's some appealing things to this idea. You load it onto tankers, and if there's a spill, which is the big nightmare here in, in B.C., it's got a lot of people worried, well, it's, you're not spilling bitumen into the ocean, which would be difficult to clean up. You're, you would be spilling refined fuel, which would, a lot of it would evaporate into the air and not as damaging. The, the other thing is a lot of people say, well, hang on, don't you need a pipeline to get the bitumen up there? And, and Trudeau canceled the Northern Gateway pipeline to Kitimat. Well, he's got that one covered, too. He says you don't need a pipeline. What you could do is just process the bitumen in Alberta into solid pellets and ship it to Kitimat by rail, and then you would refine the stuff into fuel. So, it's it's an interesting and exciting idea that he's been talking about for many years. Trudeau says he's open to it, but like I said, come on. Um, you know, saying you're open to it is one thing. Actually, actually supporting it and actually getting it done is, is something completely different. And
0: getting it by the NEB would be something completely, oh, completely different as well. Plus, uh, so I understand it, this is the public inquiry that's been called by Premier Horgan on the price, uh, the massive price of the expense of the of gasoline in, uh, in in British Columbia for consumers, the yeah. most simple thing to do, and you've talked about this and you've written about it, lower taxes.
1: Yeah, I mean John Horgan called this gas price inquiry, which is underway in the past few days, and uh, you know I, I just think it's a it's a political dodge by Horgan. There's there's a lot of people in Metro Vancouver here who are sick and tired of paying high gas prices, which are the highest in North America here. And one of the reasons gas prices are so high here is we also have the highest gas taxes in North America. Now, Premier John Horgan is saying, Don't blame me for this. This is not about gas taxes. That's not the problem. He says, We're getting gouged by these big oil companies. They're ripping you off. So every time you go to fill up your gas tank here in vancouver it's like these big fat cat oil executives are grabbing you by the ankles and holding you upside down and shaking every dime out of your pocket this is terrible so he called this public inquiry into it and it's not exactly been uh, gr- uh, bombshell uh, testimony over there roy uh, you know i was kind of hoping that wouldn't it be awesome if you got an oil executive on there and there you had some youtube moment where he was confronted with uh with proof of collusion or price fixing or something, and and had to admit it. That that'd be incredible, but uh, it hasn't happened. So so uh, so far, there's been no direct evidence of price fixing or gouging or uh, or collusion. So, but we'll see. It's going to continue uh,
0: next week. Mike, I appreciate the time, and I enjoyed your column on Thursday. Gas price inquiry may put pressure on Horgan to act. Always good talking to you, Mike. Thank you. My pleasure, Roy. Mike Smith from the Vancouver Province and CKNW Radio.